Good morning, fellowship. You're like, who in the world is this? That does not look like Michael or Lloyd. Uh, my name is Phil, and I'm the teaching pastor for the Nashville campus. Or for those of you who are at the Christmas Eve services, Young Santa. Thank you, Lloyd Shadrach, for that one. Um, I'm so delighted to be with you all this morning. I wanted to give you a brief update on what's going on at the Nashville campus. So for those of you who don't know, we have three campuses here in Brentwood, Franklin, and Nashville. And on August 14th, we started our newest location there in the 12th South neighborhood of Nashville. And so the Lord has been so kind to us, and we're up to about 200 adults and 80 kids on any given Sunday. And uh, we've seen some great things being done in the school we're ministering in and the neighborhood we're coming to. And so one of our great hearts and desires has been that we would help to change perceptions of what an evangelical is among those who may not have the best perception of us. And so one of the great um, joys we've had is that we threw a fall festival uh, for Waverly Belmont, the school we meet in, in October. And little did we know that there was some backlash to us providing this for the school. Well, the PTO president afterwards gets to us and lets us know that this had happened and says, and you would never believe it, but so all those people who called to or emailed to complain actually emailed back and apologized and said they were so thankful y'all are there and excited for what's in store. And so what's one of those moments we see just earning that right to share the good news of Jesus with them? And so we'd appreciate your prayers for that. And as we look for more opportunities to minister in the city, specifically as we're starting partnership with Salome on helping refugees, immigrants, and the underprivileged within the city, we're starting partnerships with the school, with tutoring and whatnot. And uh, so we've got a lot going on. And even today, we're launching our city groups, our discipleship engines, small groups, whatever you want to call it, uh, for our campus. And so a lot's going on. And I just wanted to thank you. Thank you for your prayers, your support, and for so many of you who actually came and showed up for the first 30 to 60 days to help give us some support and volunteering in our kids' ministry and set up and tear down. And I kind of likened it to when you had your first child and the in-law showed up for a week, which was great, and then they left. And uh, you freaked out for a while, so that was October, November for me. Um, but uh, it, things are really going right now, and so thank you for that. Well, um, if you haven't been here, we have been going through a series through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ and seeing how his life redefines our own. And so this morning we are going to pick up in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, I pray you do. Let's grab them and turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. Mark 8, 27 to 33. Now Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered and said, you, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come now pleading 
that you would be our teacher, that you would enable these dead hearts to see the wonders and the beauties of Jesus and to see our great need of him and what you call us to. And so Lord, this morning, no matter where we come in our faith journey, may we come to see him. For we ask this in his precious name, amen. Now, as far back as I can remember, I have always been a fan of watches, especially high-end designer watches. But there's always been this nagging problem. I don't have a high-end designer watch budget. So I've had to rely on street vendors with briefcases for the majority of my life. And uh, if you're not too attuned to the knockoff market, there is a big spectrum of knockoffs. They aren't all created equal. And uh, what I've learned, no matter which one I bought, the ones that were easily discerned from afar or the ones that were hard to tell even at close inspection, was that inevitably they fell prey to the same basic flaw. They couldn't tell time very well which is a really bad problem if the sole reason for your existence is to tell time. And it would become apparent as the days and weeks went by that the more I set my life to the knockoff, the more things didn't go right, the more I missed the mark. You know, when I begin to think about our faith journeys, uh, our discipleship, It seemed that so often we have set or synchronized our lives to cheap knockoffs. Now, for some, the counterfeit Christ is fairly easy to identify. You know, it's merely a Jesus guru, a philosopher, a teacher, or religious do-gooder. But the problem for the disciples, and for most of us as well, is that we often fall prey to a knockoff that's not so readily apparent. You see, we can fall for these knockoffs that have a high and orthodox view of God. They can be Trinitarian. That they can have a a desire to celebrate the greatness of Jesus. They may even pursue great good in the world and love to speak of forgiveness and grace. But ever so subtly, they do one thing. They sidestep the cross. On the surface, everything seems to look the same. But underneath, something critically important is missing. You see, the life lived for this Jesus gradually begins to reflect more and more of Pleasantville. Remember that movie? The black and white became, all right, I got you. Some of you remember. And less and less of Calvary. One New Testament scholar asked this question. Are we prepared to have the easy answers of our culture challenged by the actual Jesus, by his redefined notion of messiahship, and by the call coming in the next section to follow him in his risky vocation? You see, the call to follow Christ was not merely a call to believe, but a call to synchronize our lives to his to let his heart, his priorities, his agenda inform and transform our hearts, our priorities, and our agendas by his spirit. And what you see is what Jesus does so subtly in this passage for the disciples is what we need today to expose the counterfeit alternatives so that we may synchronize our lives not to some cheap facsimile, but to the genuine article.
What we find in this text this morning is that when we encounter the real Jesus, we realize that the cross is not merely the way of salvation, but a way of life. And so we're going to look at this through the two main sections of our passage. First, the description, uh, the confession of Christ in verses 27 to 30, and the description of Christ in 31 to 33. Now, remember where we've been so far in the Gospel of Mark. We have watched Jesus do miraculous things, right? We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him raise the dead, cast out demons. We've seen him calm a storm, walk on water, and even feed a multitudes with a snack pack. Twice. Michael walked us through that last week. And despite everything they've seen, despite everything they have experienced, the disciples don't get it. Mark tells us the reason is because their hearts were hard. And so Jesus once again tries to get disciples away by themselves and actually accomplishes it this time, may I add, by taking them away to try to instill in their hearts and minds one critical lesson. Remember, up to this point, it's been a gospel of action. It's been, it's been immediately, immediately, immediately. And now in chapters eight to 10, Mark begins to slow down because we find ourselves at the most pitiful, uh, pivotal, not pitiful, pivotal moment in the gospel. The moment when the penny drops and the disciples finally begin to understand who it is that stands before them. And so in verse 27, we find the disciples on the way. Now it's interesting, that word for way is used in eight, nine, and 10. And the question we ultimately have to ask, the way to where? It's critically important because Jesus is now setting his eyes somewhere and the answer comes in chapter 10 that he is making his way to Jerusalem. And so now the shadow of the cross will loom heavy over everything that happens in Jesus' and the disciples' lives from here on out. And so he makes his way to Jerusalem by a way that's kind of odd through a pit stop in Caesarea Philippi. Now you have to understand that Caesarea Philippi is a, a little city that is directly due north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was on the border of the Jewish and Gentile territories. And it was uh, peculiarly known for one thing, pagan worship. Now, that would seem a fairly odd place for Jesus to have a private moment with his disciples, but as we begin to understand what he will teach and um, begin to amplify and uh, commentate in Matthew chapter 16 is that this place has critical importance because he will use the geography around him as well to help be a teaching tool for his disciples. You see, there was uh, in this area a temple to the god Pan. Now, if you look at this picture behind me, up in this rock face was uh, the remnants of this temple, along with the temple to Zeus and some other pagan gods. And so this region had great rocks. And so when you think about what happens in Matthew's account, is that after Peter confesses Christ, what does Jesus say? He says, you are Peter or Petros, and on this rock Petre, I will build my church. Now, I want you to look at this next picture. You see, Caesarea Philippi sat at the foot of Mount Hermon. See it there in the distance. And notice how rocky the terrain is. And so Jesus is beginning to pick all these things out as he's talking to his disciples. And he says, Peter, you are the little rock, and upon the big rock, the immovable rock, I will build that church. We understand that rock to be Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. But there's something else found here as well. 
You see, I, I bet most of us didn't realize that there actually was a place in Caesarea Philippi called the Gates of Hell. All right, if we go back to that picture with the rock face, is that dark area right there. What you need to understand is that in Jesus' day, there was actually a river flowing from it. And so in their pre-modern mindset, they are wondering, what is this weird phenomenon? And so they began to understand it as the kind of gateway between our world and the underworld. So they called it the gates of hell. And so when you begin to understand the significance of this place and the terrain for what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples, you begin to see something very extraordinary. As he begins to reveal who he is and what he will do, he shows this as the foundation for how he will build his church. Because no matter how dark or no how present death, nothing can stand in the way of the power of Jesus and of his gospel. And so against this backdrop, we find Jesus begin asking his disciples a question. Now, most of us kind of wonder what other people think of us, right? Some of us are people pleasers like myself and probably care a little too much what others think of us. And so Jesus asked this question, who do people say that I am? Is he just trying to gauge people's opinion of himself, kind of see where he stands in the polls? No, he's trying to make a point. And so the disciples answer him saying, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Matthew adds Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so clearly from all of these, they're very positive. They're very high views of Jesus. Notice he doesn't say what the like, Pharisees and Sadducees think of him. They leave all of the positives here. And he is a man sent from God, Right? And as you look to the lives and ministries of John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, and throw in the reality that the Old Testament made a prophecy that Elijah would come again, and that in the apocryphal books there was an understanding that Jeremiah might come back, you begin to see how someone may see those parallels and think, in fact, Jesus were the reincarnation or the arrival of these individuals, these prophets. But what we find that though their ideas of Jesus were very high, they were not high enough. You see, just because you may have a fondness for Jesus, just because you can have appreciation for his teaching or for what he has done or for many, what many have done in his name, it's not enough. That Jesus will not leave us with these counterfeit alternatives. He wants us to understand the genuine reality. And so he begins to press the question with his disciples by saying this, but, but who do you say that I am? You know, this is ultimately the question that every one of us must answer in our lives because the claims of Jesus are too great to just leave him be. We can't be apathetic when a man makes claims that he is God in the flesh and that he alone is the way of salvation. We must come and weigh the evidence. And as C.S. Lewis once said, find him as Lord, liar, or lunatic. There is no other option. And so you imagine this moment of kind of awkward silence. And then good old Peter speaks. I mean, he was always the one you could count on when that awkward moment in small group to say something. Usually the wrong thing. I mean, most of the time when Peter speaks, it's kind of like Jesus goes, no, 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 no. This is what it is. But for once, Peter gets it right. This, in my opinion, may be Jesus' biggest miracle. I mean, have you read most of the stuff he says? For this one shining moment, all of a sudden the clouds break and he sees it. He says, you 
are the Christ. Now you understand, this is no small step for the disciples, Peter in particular. Remember, there are a lot of big ideas and expectations when it comes to this Christ. And up to this point, the disciples have only referred to him as teacher. See, the word Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was a title. It means anointed one. It was Messiah. It was the king to end all kings who would usher in true shalom in Jerusalem, in Israel, and in the world around us. It was a big and lofty title. And as Peter has this moment of absolute clarity, Jesus quickly seems to shut it down. Look what he, look what he says next, verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one. All right, if you've been here through this series, you've noticed this ain't the first time Jesus has done this. Every time you think we're getting somewhere, he says, don't tell anybody. And we gotta ask, why does he do that? Well, I think the best answer is seen in what we call the secrecy motif. And so remember, is that there are all this baggage when it came to this understanding of Christ. And so when people would begin to realize or think that he is the Christ, they would expect one thing when in fact he offers us something else. In fact, this is what happens in John chapter six, verse 15. See, it's right after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus, if you remember, tries to get his, his, his boys, his disciples, out of there as quickly as possible. Why? He said, because the crowds wanted to make him king by force. They were tempting Jesus and the disciples to seek a crown apart from a cross. And so we move from the confession of Christ to the description of Christ. You see what Jesus essentially says, he says, you're right, I am the Christ, but not as you expected. You got the job title right, but let me fill you in in the job description. I remember as I was interviewing here, I kept on hearing campus teaching pastor, campus teaching pastor, and I asked, what does that mean exactly? It's one thing to know the title, it's another thing to know what that title entails, what is the job description? And so Jesus begins to spell this out plainly as he says in verse 32 to his disciples, and he says this. He says, but the son of man must suffer. Now first notice this title, son of man. And it's not saying merely that Jesus is a human. What he's saying is that it's a messianic term used in Daniel chapter seven of this messianic figure who stands before the ancient of days, the father, and receives power, glory, and dominion over all the nations. And what we find in these next few verses is we find this idea of the Christ, the anointed Messiah, of the Son of Man, and then of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, all intersecting and coming together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Bible, I want you to circle that next four-letter word, the Son of Man must. You see, that word says, tells us that what he's about to say is of absolute necessity. There is no other option. What I'm about to say must transpire. It must happen. And he tells them he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and to rise again again. Now, it's one thing to suffer as a revolutionary, right? I mean, you look through the great heroes of history. There's always some suffering involved, Right? But, but, but to be rejected by the religious leaders, the one who should own you first, to acknowledge you first, and to be killed, that's another deal altogether. And we must begin to ask ourselves, why? Could there be another way? 
I mean, couldn't just Jesus kind of just like wave the magic forgiveness wand and forgive everybody? Make everything right? And so what you and I need to understand that the why is found in this, that the true freedom that we long for from the debt of sin, the root of our cosmic problem, cannot come without a cost and without appropriate representation. Read the wages of sin is death. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That it would take a great cost to pay for the debt that we owe God because we have inherited an infinite debt because sin against an infinite God is infinite sin, infinite debt. And that is just for one individual, not to think of the collective debt of humanity. And so we needed someone who was worthy enough to pay the price. That is why he must be fully God. But we also needed someone to stand in our stead to be our representative. It's what we find in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Where in one man was brought sin and death, so through another will come obedience and life. See, we need someone who is like us to represent us. That ultimately, you will pay, or Jesus says, I will. But someone must absorb the cost. Now, today we barely bat an eye at the statement. You know, it's kind of like one of those bad Geico commercials. Like if you're Jesus, you go to the cross. It's what you do, right? I mean, we don't think twice about it. We think, well, that's what he does. That's what Jesus is all about. Jesus on the cross, right, I get it. But you have to understand, to the disciples, this was utterly reprehensible. Notice what Peter does next. He rebukes Jesus. All right, folks? Well, it was fun while it lasted. Three verses of glory followed by utter shame. I mean, he lasted like 7.6 seconds. It's like the obedience of my four-year-old. One moment he's like hugging mom, the next moment he's like choking his brothers. And man, you know what I love about that? It gives hope for a guy like me. Because I have those Peter moments where, oh man, I get it. And the next moment I am often left field. And if I know humanity well enough, and I think I do, you've probably experienced the same exact thing. And I pray you experience the same exact Jesus. Now, before we throw Peter under the bus, you know, he's really good for that. I mean, whenever I'm having a bad day with Jesus, I just like read a Peter passage and I feel so much better about myself. (laughs) But I want you for a moment to imagine that you are a campaign staffer or director for a presidential candidate. For the last several years, you've been touring with him all over the country from one rally to the next. You've passed out a lot of make Israel great again hats along the way, right? It's huge. Everyone loves it, everyone. You think he's the answer, right? You've got great hopes for all he seems to stand for, that all the expectations of what he will do under his administration. And imagine for a moment on the eve of victory when you were leading in the polls, he gathers his staffers and says to them, I'm stepping out of the race. I'm going to take a fall for another sin, though I'm innocent. And most likely I'll be prosecuted. What would you feel in that moment? 
I mean, first you love him, right? You've, you've dedicated your life to him and, and seeing this greatness happen before you. But second, you begin thinking, what are the implications for my nation? And even more, what are the implications for me? Remember, I hitched my caboose to this train. If he's going off the rails, I'm going right with him. So begin to understand how uh, Peter responds in this way. How could you do this, Jesus? And so Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. This was crazy talk. But the reality is that Peter doesn't get the half of it. You see, in his rebuke, he cloaked it with his concern, right? I mean, he's concerned for Jesus. He's concerned for the nation. He's concerned for himself as well. But it hid something satanically sinister. Because notice what Jesus says after Peter rebukes him. He looks at his disciples, verse 33, and says, get behind me, Satan. Matthew says that after he confesses Christ, he says that was a gift of God. You essentially heard from God. And now you are Satan. What a shift, right? And we begin to understand that when we begin to make a Christ without a cross, it is a seat of Satan. That when we seek to minimize him, when we seek to make an easier way to avoid the offense of the cross, we are merely a tool at the adversary's disposal. You see, what we begin to see in Jesus' words is this. That the cross is both the way of salvation and the way of life. That's the part that Peter was just beginning to scratch the surface of. Lloyd will delve more into that next week. But I want to give you a sneak peek. And it's this. If the cross was of absolute necessity to him, what you and I need to come to understand, it will be of absolute necessity to us. There's no sidestepping the cross of Jesus for the follower of him. And here's our problem. Jesus then follows us up by saying, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. He's saying you're looking at it all wrong. You're looking at the world. You're looking at my plans. You're looking at my purposes through the wrong spectacles. You're basing everything on the judgment of men and not the decision and wisdom of God. And what you and I need to understand, we do it all the time, don't we? I often think if I were God, I would do it a different way. How could he do it in this way? Why would he choose that? Why does things go that way? And in that moment, I'm buying into this lie and falling prey to the deception. So what does this mean for us? 2,000 years later, and I want to answer that by looking at three questions because remember, that's what Jesus began this with. And the first question is this, who do you say I am? It's the very question that Jesus asked his disciples. And I would urge you this morning, before you leave this room, before you leave that seat, will you honestly deal with the Lord and deal with what stands before you, the one who stands before you, and answer that question? 
Is he merely a man, merely a prophet, or is the promised Messiah the Son of God? Liar, Lord, or lunatic? Second question is this. Who or what are the lost causes in your mind? Think who has gone too far deep into sin or is far too firm in their convictions to ever change? I think if you take a moment, you can think of someone or some people or some place that you think is just that lost cause. Now I want us to take us back to the location, Caesarea Philippi. Remember the, the teaching on the rock and of the gates of hell and of his words that when Peter confessed Jesus, this did not come from flesh and blood, but from my father. You see, what Jesus was saying is that Peter, this moment of clarity you have of seeing me for who I am for the first time is a miracle of God, not merely the brightness of man. And is that kernel of truth in connection with his amazing statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I will build her through thick and thin, through hell and high water. It will come to pass. He is firming up our faith by showing that a person coming to Jesus is a miracle of God. And the assumption or the subtle inference is if Peter can do it, you can do it. If God can change Peter's life, he can change anyone's life. Because here's the subtle deception we often fall prey to. I think if I saw half of what Peter saw, I would never struggle with faith again, right? You let me walk on water for a little bit and I am good as gold. I'll go with you anywhere, Jesus. But history tells us something far different. Peter saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And he didn't get it. The evidence was not enough. What he needed was a miracle, just like the deaf man, just like the blind man, just like the one who was dead. He needed God to do for him what he could not do for himself. A few weeks ago, I went home to Pennsylvania for my grandmother's funeral. And there's one thing that happens as you get older is that slowly the family history gets a little more unedited. And so I began to hear some things that I had never heard before. And what I learned was this. I'm the descendant of drunkards, deadbeats, abusers, and a prostitute. That was a new one for me. I'm the descendant of a man who deserted his family and of a woman who tried and failed to abort her child and to top it all I'm also the descendant of a potential serial killer so there's probably one of two things you're thinking right now first I am gravely concerned for the Nashville campus um, <laughs> might be your first reaction the second one may be this how are you here? One answer. Grace. Beginning to end, top to bottom, left to right, it is his grace. 
And then as I was driving home on an 11-hour ride from Pennsylvania, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror at my four little boys, and I began to contemplate what life was like for my great-grandparents, and I contrasted that with the reality of my kids, and I was reminded in that moment when that miracle happens in a life, it has implications for generations. There's a miracle that began to be a catalyst for miracle after miracle after that. The life my kids now own, that they live, that they experience, it's all because of these several little miracles that happened years and years ago. And I say that to remind you this. There are no lost causes. Only lost people. And guess what? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so who is it in your life that you feel is the lost cause? Who is it who's too far beyond the reach of his grace? And I want you to remind yourself if Peter can get it. Anybody can get it. That God's power, his spirit is powerful enough to change the most deadened and dark heart. You see, what this brings us to is both humility and hope. Humility that says that everything I have is owed to him and so I live a life of worship and gratitude. Hope. That no matter how dark the situation may seem, no matter how far they may seem from Jesus, that he is the elder brother who will run to a far country to bring them home to the Father. Third, as I begin this, I want to invite Luke and the band up. I want to ask you this question is, what does your life reveal about who he is? Think about your words, actions, your checkbook, your time, your politics, your priorities, and even the benchmarks of success. Or let me put it another way. If you were to reverse engineer your discipleship to reveal his messiahship, what does it show? Would it show a God who is willing to pay any price to love his enemies? and to give them what they most certainly do not deserve. Or a God who wants others to pay the price to give him whatever he thinks he deserves. Now, if your answer is like mine, it looks like many things, but so often it does not look like what we find in here. See, he would be far more self-serving, concerned about his reputation, his comfort, his wants, and his needs. He would be a slave to himself and seek the fleeting approval of others. And see, what this introspection, what this looking at my life begins to reveal to me is how desperately I need him. I need him to liberate me from myself. I need him to pay the debt for my failures. I need him to love me when I don't understand. I need him to open my eyes and to lead me into a life like no other. I need him to do for me what flesh and blood cannot. 
And praise God, he has. And if you will turn to him this morning, he will. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take the next few moments to respond to him by recalibrating our hearts through song. That we would feel the impact of these words, seeing the reality of who he is and how far from close we are to all he is. Because at this heart of this song, it is a prayer to see the genuine Jesus and the greatness of his love because nothing, I mean nothing, can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And nothing, I mean nothing, can stop him from accomplishing his plan in our lives and in our worlds. And so let's stand together now and let us sing. Give me eyes to see more of who you are May what I behold still my anxious heart And take what I have known and break it all apart For you, my God, are greater still And no sky contains no doubt restrains all you the greatness of our God I spend my life to know and I'm far from close to all you the greatness of our God and give me grace to see beyond this moment To believe that there is nothing left to fear And that you alone are high above it all For you, my God, are greater still And no sky contains, no of our God I spend my life to know and I'm far from close to all you the greatness of our God to all you the greatness of our God and there is none that can ever separate
leave this place without experiencing the one who loves you like that, who is greater far than anything that you can think or imagine. So what I want to do is end this service like Christians throughout the centuries have done by praying a benediction over you. In the Old Testament, the priest would do this as a way of setting the name of God upon his people and his blessing. So in this moment, would you just put your hands out like this as I close this with this benediction. And I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the saints to comprehend the length and the width and the height and the depth of his love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go forth in his name. God bless.